Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fuck dumpsters? What's happening? How you doing? It's Mark Marin. This is my show, WTF. Welcome to it. Interesting show today. Interesting because it's a an outsider show. Outsiders. Yes. Uh, the dudes from Endless Boogie are here. Paul Major and Jesper Eklo. But Paul Major is not just a guy in a band. He's a guy that sort of defined the um, the weird vinyl pursuit of the grails that are small runs of usually independently produced records from the 60s and 70s. As a long intro, but uh, I'd been hearing about this guy I sort of knew him. I'd seen pictures of him. I came upon Endless Boogie. I'll tell you about that in a minute. But they're on the show today. It was a surprise to have uh, to have uh, Jesper in as well. But it worked out pretty good. Uh, but there's other things going on. I'm playing Carnegie Hall tomorrow night. I'm recording this on um, on Tuesday because you know I got to shoot. I got it's just very busy. I'm feeling good about Carnegie, but I'm feeling a, a, a slight bleak cloud over me because my little baby my little LaFonda cat is sick and I don't know if she's gonna make it and I can't stand it but I don't know what to do the last time I talked to you guys I'd recorded that on a a couple days early too but I had them had them both at the vet Buster's got no balls that went fine he seems okay doesn't seem much different maybe a little maybe he's a little a little more chill, but not much. Monkey felt sick to me. Fonda was sick. I brought her in, but she see with the first one with the sickness. And Monkey seemed sick. I brought him in. So I go pick up Monkey, and they give him antibiotics. He's okay, but Fonda's not okay. Fonda, you know, it was a big ordeal. Fucking sad, man. Twelve-year-old cat. You know, you hear about these cats that live forever. These. 16-year-old, 19-year-old, 22-year-old cats. And I don't know what's going to happen. I got to go to New York tomorrow. And uh, I don't know if she's going to make it until when I'm back. And, you know, Sarah's going to drop by and I've got someone at the house who's going to feed the cats as well. And, you know, but I guess this is the way it is. But, you, you know, even if you sit there and you kind of process it and accept it, 
you know, you live with these things. These cats are the longest relationships I've had in my life, really, 12 years. And she's just fucking sick and there's nothing I can do. I thought I was going to have to put her down today, but this guy gave me some hope and I guess you don't put a cat down if they still are kind of eating and not, doesn't seem like she's in pain. She just seems out of it. So that's sort of hanging over me. And um, even with little Buster, I, I, there's part of me that's like that evil little fuck. He's, he put the, the bad mojo on the cats. He fucking, I don't know. So now I'm looking at him like some sort of evil seed, and I'm glad Monkey's okay, but how long's he got? I, I guess, you know, I'm okay, but, you know, I feel like I've done everything I could for this cat. And now it's just a waiting game, and I got to go to New York with my cat, you know, sort of deathly ill, and do Carnegie Hall. Look, I know it's not my girlfriend or my brother or my parents or whatever, but... But in terms of being close to something, I've been with this this female thing for a long time. It's an odd little cat. And I just hope she pulls through. Hope she pulls through. But I'm I'm not I'm not optimistic, but maybe I should be. Maybe I should uh, you know, put my brain in a good place and maybe she'll she'll pull out of it. I don't mean to be bleak, you guys. Carnegie Hall, I was, you know, I'm kind of nervous about that. And I was kind of full of dread and uh and anxiety, but it's like what why why don't let's just make it exciting. I'm I'm excited. I've let, I looked at my set. I've got a lot of good stuff I want to do. It, it should be exciting. I've no sense of the hall, but I know it's this place. There's part of me that's like thinking like I'm not a virtuoso. The, even that joke, the sort of like you know, how do you get to Carnegie Hall? Practice, practice, practice. I'm like, ah, did I practice enough? How about persistence, persistence, persistence? And talent. What about that? I got a little of that. Got a little of both of those. I practiced. I'm excited and I'm excited. You know, we basically sold the place out. There's uh, some single tickets left in the, uh, in the big, in the high seats. Got some friends coming. But I think I'm just going to hang low before the show. I might do a set at uh, over there at Housing Works Bookstore in Soho Thursday night. There's a, they're raising money for an AIDS charity. I think I'm going to go on that show with uh, Garofalo and Lori Kilmartin. I think Andy Blitz is going to be there. And my buddy Nate Bargetzi do a little uh, short warm-up in a bookstore for the Carnegie Hall show. There's some dates coming up I, I'd like to tell you about because I'm, uh, I'm excited. I'm going to be heading to... Uh, to Nashville and Chicago soon. I think those are the ones that are the closest to what's uh, to where we are at now. I'll be in Nashville um, on November 19th at the James K. Polk Theater. I'll be at the Vic Theater in Chicago December 3rd. And, uh, and then we move into January. But those are the two gigs after Carnegie before the end of the year. Nice winter gigs in Nashville and in Chicago. Going to be chilly. But uh, so we, me and Brendan... McDonald, the uh, wizard behind the curtain of WTF, my producer and business partner, were down at the Now Hear This uh, podcast festival, and it was a pretty good time. Uh, we did something we never really did before live. Uh, we did a, uh, a podcast that you'll be able to hear in time where the two of us talked about WTF, and Brendan put a lot of prep into it. 
and I did what I do, which might be the opposite of that. But uh, the way I look at it, either you kind of like put hands on prep in or you do something at enough times in your life where you're prepped down to the core for anything. So I went with that attitude. I'm prepped because I live it. He was prepped because he got it all down and structured it. But the trick was he didn't tell me what he was going to bring up. There were all these emails, some outtakes, some stories. So I told him not to show any of it to me or tell me anything. There was bits and pieces of podcasts. And uh, it turned out to be pretty fun. I like, uh, I like thinking on my feet, reacting. Things came up. Did a nice hour and a half show. Uh, we'll be playing that podcast for you soon. Uh, but it was fun, man. And I think me and Brendan are going to be a, a, a team on the road. I think that's going to happen. We're not going to do birthday parties or bar mitzvahs, but uh, it was sort of this, uh, you know, I've done a few of those sort of keynote things or presentation type things myself, and they're okay, but doing it with Brendan would be uh, great. You know why? Because he prepped. He got structure and everything, and I just have to lean into it. That's all I got to do. I got choked up, but then you don't want it to become a shtick. You know, like, hey, hey Mark, you're going to cry at the end of that one? got choked up because i was happy for us i was happy for him and as you know i get choked up often i'm trying not trying to keep it together with the cat situation all right so paul major and uh jesper eclo the band endless boogie i had gotten a bunch of records at some point i go through a lot of records and i got this one record uh endless boogie it had nothing on the cover it had this weird profile of a mountain that looked like a thing a guy and, uh, and I put it on and I'm like, what is this, man? It's just a, a, a moving groove, deep rock kind of blues boogie groove. And I was like, this is real. And then it turned out to be this band, Endless Boogie. And I talked to my buddy, Matt Sweeney, who happens to be involved with End- Endless Boogie occasionally, just like Matt Sweeney is involved with fucking everything cool and hot and hip and music. It's like the zealot of uh, art and music. But uh, so he told me about uh, Paul Major, who I was curious about anyways, because my buddy Dan, Dan Cook down at Gimme Gimme Records knows about Paul Major because Paul Major back in the day had this newsletter that was very important and very specific to record nerds about his finds. He just spent a lifetime searching for these small releases, rock records primarily in the 60s and 70s. And uh, he, 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 he invented this niche of vinyl collecting. And since then, he's become sort of a mythic uh, person and he's defined this uh, genre of collecting. And now there's a lot of labels reissuing some of the records that he unearthed and are impossible to find because there's a limited number of them. So I was kind of curious about that because I've been kind of in the uh, vinyl rabbit hole myself and Jesper's in the band, but apparently... When Paul used to live down the village, I believe it was, back in the day, he was a sort of wizard of vinyl and, and, and music. And there were dudes who used to hang out. Like, you know, Steve Malcolmus was involved in one of the early on with Endless Boogie. And they used to hang out and play records at his place and look to his wisdom of music and weird off the grid type of sounds, man. And Jesper was, was one of the dudes. And they decided to start this band because Paul always wanted to be in a band and he'd been in bands. 
And that's where Endless Boogie came from. But they got a new album coming out early next year called Vibe Killer. You can check them out at Endless Boogie on Facebook or go to nocorder.net. That's the label. And uh, so this is sort of an interesting off the beaten path episode of this show, this type of interview. Uh, I hope you enjoy it. This is me, Paul Major, and Jesper. Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school, or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of, like literature. And now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or needing to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Fox Page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Fox Page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcasts. Quote. It's a very weird thing. Like, I didn't really know exactly who you were. And here's what happened. I get sent records a few years ago. I get sent a lot of records by just people. And a lot of them stink. And uh, I put on... Um, I, I didn't know what it was, but I put it... Because, you know, the cover's menacing and it's nondescript. And I put on Endless Boogie, uh, Long Island. And I go through a lot of records, man. And I'm just listening to this thinking, like, what the fuck is this? And then all of a sudden, I'm like, holy shit, this is real. This is deep. Where the fuck is this from? So then I got to go track you down and figure out what you're about. And then I find a picture of you with holding a Morgan record. There's not a lot of pictures of you, but you're holding that Morgan record. And I'm like, that's something that Dan Cook sold me over a gimme gimme. And then, like, like I just started doing the vinyl thing a few years ago. And then I started researching a little bit of what you do. And I'm like, it's this guy's fault. <laughs> he's, he's the guy that, that made us want these records. You are sort of responsible, aren't you? Well, I certainly had my hand in it. Yeah. And, uh, it wasn't intentional. But yeah. uh, yeah, it's just, I, I am to blame for a lot of this. Yeah, because like now I'm starting to learn more about these, like, these records that were... Uh, you know, these small releases or, or, or sort of um, artist release records that are now being reissued because vinyl's all of a sudden the shit. And now uh, I'm learning about bands that no one has ever heard of. What was the, like, let's go back, you know, to where this starts. Because I love, you know, I love Endless Boogie. I just got the, uh, I got the second record. So I've got full, uh, full, what is it? Full, full House Full head. House Head. And I've got Long Island. I don't have the new one. When's that coming out? It's uh, still going to be a little while. We got a lot of it done. Then yeah. I br broke my arm. That pushed us back. How'd you break and, your arm, uh, man? Carrying an amplifier and not paying attention to where I was putting my feet. <laughs> <laughs> Injured in battle. Yeah. The yeah. rock and roll battle. So where did the um, the, the reputation or, or which was earned to, of, of finding these records, I mean, where does that start? The one thing I learned from, from your lead is that how mind fucked we are by mainstream music and that like you, you know listening to some of the stuff that's been reissued that you have you know discovered in certain ways or brought to the public's attention like morgan 
is like I, I start to realize like there's so much great fucking music out there that's just lost forever. Is that what compelled you well, initially? Or it seemed to be lost uh, forever. Of course, now speaking of Morgan, it, as a kid, when yeah. I had that album when I was a little kid, yeah. it was blowing my mind in isolation in Louisville, Kentucky, You know, saying, I want to be part of this world. And right. The only way I'm getting it is through these sort of records like a lifeline to the... Right. It, it is kind of a mind blower to me that you can look on YouTube and see that like 250, 300,000 people have listened to Love off that album. And right. When I was a kid in Kentucky, you know, of course, I'm just thinking maybe 200 people, you know, by the time I'm dead will have been into this record. But it started for me really at the end of 1966 when I was 12 years old. Yeah. I was a math nerd and this and that, totally oblivious to music, even though I'm sure I must have heard Satisfaction on the radio and of some course. stuff before. Yeah, that. yeah. And then. Towards the end of 1966 in uh, Louisville, Kentucky, I heard Psychotic Reaction on the radio. Right. And it was like, all bets are off. You know, everything's up for grabs. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> life changes. You know, the <clears throat> fuzz guitars, the, you know. No equation for this. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's like the next day, I'm mowing lawns to get enough change together to go wander off down the uh, sort of hippie district of Louisville, Kentucky, right. Bardstown Road. Right. Look for all the used... Uh, through all the used records and you know ones that have that like morgan wow you know it was before i had any access to pot or lsd or stuff and i'm looking at the track saying mm, this is that long one maybe this is one of those tracks that's like like tripping yeah 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 right right that was something you heard about from the from the magazines or whatever yeah i get some tip yeah tips from the magazines there was a magazine i guess uh, available to me uh right before i tuned into other rock magazines there was yeah. this one hit parader that was yeah. very oh, i remember uh, that and didn't that have is that the one did that have some lyrics right that, yeah 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 they would have the lyrics to all the hits right and uh they would have some good interviews and they yeah. sort of got on to the underground thing in a mainstream way and in the back they would always review five albums mm -hmm. and some of those issues at the time when it came out there'd be a review of 50 foot hose or something amazing yeah, i don't like you're, you're i don't even know what you're talking about now but that's why, well, whose record was that? That was the name of a band? It was the name of a band from San Francisco that uh, mixed uh, sort of underground rock uh, with experimental music, lots of uh, made by himself, the leader of the band, yeah. uh, electronic instruments and oscillators and, right, right. and things like that. So it, it was like a science fiction adventure or something. Right. You know? and, and so you just started like, you, by just by looking at the, the portal that the cover enabled you, it was, is, you're mostly reacting to psychedelic artwork initially. Yeah, psychedelic artwork or anything that just looks strange or anything that looked like, oh, it's coming from that angle of the twilight zone or right, something. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, when did you finally uh, try drugs? That would have been towards the end of high school. I was isolated. And <clears throat> finally, I met up with a couple of friends that were into that. And then we play music and that, you know. And I remember the first time I ever smoked pot was when I had my first job when I was 16 yeah. at a pizza place. My father set it up for me. Uh, the job, not uh, the and, pot. Uh, no, no, no. <laughs> and I remember then when I'm working there, the very first day, I'm the, I'm the bus boy in this yeah. place, which turned out to be a crazy place. Uh, as it turns out, like then why? walking out the first day, and the guy's in the back in the kitchen rolling a joint. And yeah, my f uh, mother is sitting outside in the car waiting to pick me up. Yeah, and I'm there like, you know, I want to get in on this, and right. she's waiting outside, and and they're like, <laughs> yeah, and, and you uh, did it, and then in got the in the car with your mom. Got in the car, you know. It's like, hmm, can you tell? Can they tell? Can that, she tell? And that's the whole. That's the only thing you experience that first high is like, can they tell? You're not. You can't. You know. You don't even put yourself in a position where you could enjoy it. Well, it's, yeah, it's true. It's all like that. Except I knew when I got to the house, the first thing I wanted to do was go up to my 
bedroom and start looking at my album covers. <laughs> <laughs> did, did that work? It worked. Yeah, yeah I yeah. bet. So what? Like, so when did you start uh, playing guitar? When I was thirteen. Yeah, it would be my parents to be real nice because I was obsessed with it. Then they bought me a plastic toy guitar oh. for Christmas. Yeah, well, you know, a toy at thirteen, maybe. I don't know. Not like a K. Not, not too big. A little uh, long, a little shorter than yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, probably a two-third size of yeah, that yeah. plastic. And right. I, I instantly took my crayons out and put psychedelic designs on it. And, of course. Uh, started playing along, and then I realized that, you know, it's nylon strings. It's not getting the sound. And then I realized if I tape a pencil under the bridge, it would make the strings buzz on the toy guitar. So it would go... You needed the buzz. Got to get that toy guitar buzzing. So like I uh so when did you start um what was the the process of life where you started kind of amassing these records and then like where did you how did your musical journey start so you're stuck in Louisville so you, you, when did your mind blow and you, you had to get out or how how long of a process was that where did you end up it was up a while uh, for several years I was pretty isolated <clears throat> just buying all these obscure records and uh, not knowing anything just because you wanted to listen to <clears throat> them yeah just because I wanted to listen to them and you know what are some of the other names you know like uh, bands like Silver Apples and uh, then uh, Ultra Obscure in Louisville Kentucky the Velvet Underground and bands and the Detroit bands the MC5 right the, uh, right Stooges and so forth but those were relatively uh, mainstream uh, releases right you could yeah get they they were around not not a lot but oh right yeah they, they were around so the, there was the still private like, pressings and the homemade records sort of came a later later uh, but uh, but this sort of like the punk thing because when I talked to guys who started in punk the only way to get those records was to have somebody send them over to you or like there was a network of people that would move these records around but I guess when you're in a town like Louisville and there's a, a local record store why the, they wouldn't necessarily carry the Velvet Underground or the Stooges no they're, they're when it first came out, there'd be a few places. And yeah. I first got White Light, White Heat was in a Kmart at the in the cutout bins, the like you know right, th right. thirty three cents each deletions, which seemed to hit the, those bins not long after the records came out. Well, that's that was the amazing thing about being in an area that isn't hip is that like all the hip shit just gets you know trashed. Like, mm -hmm. you, same with clothes and shit. If you want to get a good deal at Nordstrom Rack and, on an overcoat, go buy it in Arizona. Yeah. <laughs> no, it, it was a good, uh, good time, definitely, because uh, and when I did start going to use record stores and look, and I always knew the first place to look is wherever they put all the stuff they thought was garbage, the cheap stuff, because yeah, that's yeah. where all this good stuff's going to be. Cause, right. Because uh, it'll be like, you know, the Frank Zappa record will be on the wall for a lot of money, and then the local band, uh, Fraction or... Or, or one of the heavy local psychedelic bands would be like, who, who wants that? You know, they're locals. They didn't get anywhere, you know, here. So, so. You, you started buying like, uh, you know, Kentucky rock bands? Yeah, yeah. I stumbled across a few of those. There weren't that many, yeah. I guess, by the time I left, but there, there were a few local ones. A band called Crystal was one of them. And, yeah. Uh, I started buying those and I was just packed you know, packing them away and living in St. Louis for a while, was buying some more there. And when I- You moved to St. Louis? From yeah. From Louisville? From what, Louisville. What would compel you? Well, college. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so are you still keeping up your grades and doing the math? That didn't last too long once I got to college. I, I did keep my grades up. I did, yeah. you know, good at it, all that. But it, it switched to music pretty quickly. I met another friend then- In St. Louis? Had uh, was into the same stuff, and we started a, I guess what we call a pre-punk band now in St. Louis in the mid '70s called the Moldy Dogs. And, did uh, you release any records? No, no. <laughs> but you just jammed. Just made tapes and then yeah. play, played played uh, kind of 
strange local shows and yeah, so forth. Yeah. We, we started as a duo, acoustic guitar, and I would play fuzz guitar, and we would do a Gimme Danger, sure. or do I'm Waiting for the Man, and things like that, and started writing our own songs and play around town at like pizza joints and places like that. Did and, people uh, come? Yeah, yeah. Not a whole lot, but we did connect within the other, in the St. Louis area, the other couple of pockets of people that were also in, in, into that kind of stuff through that. And enough people did come to one place I remember called the Pastrami Joint we used to play at. Yeah. Enough barefoot teenage or started showing up each time we play there that, that, that they say, you can't play here anymore. You know, these people come in, they don't buy any... Uh, any pastrami they just come in and like clutter the place up with they, no shoes and their stinky yeah. feet so the so you survive so you were like 13 or 14 during the the late 60s right yeah yeah and then so now you know in the 70s you're like you know later teens yeah so well, actually like, yeah i was born in 1954 so, oh, so you're 13 and 67 right t- turned 13 so you were so. like you know you were prime headspace for that whole fucking mind fuck oh yeah yeah the timing couldn't have been better to you know hear that song and hear fuzz guitars for the so first like, time right so the it was like I, I can't imagine what that would be like to hear that shit for reals for the first time without any context right when it's happening it, it did seem like it was something leaking from this amazing mysterious other world <laughs> san francisco like you could feel the yeah, yeah, the, yeah. the vibration of that yeah I, I would be looking at life magazine at the right pictures in there and i think there's a famous picture in there where there's a picture of a guy sitting in the corner who believes he's an orange and i'm thinking i want to understand like you know i want to be an orange too yeah. <laughs> jesper yeah where'd you meet paul oh uh, i met paul maybe early 90s i moved to new york uh from sweden and uh He's he'd already been legendary in the record collecting circuit. Were you a record Chris. collector? Yeah, I worked in a record store. Um, and yeah, I was into strange music. But um, Paul used to publish this catalog every now and then. This is how Paul made his all his money since he last quit his last day job in 1980 or whatever. So yeah. he, he used to amass all his records and make these incredible catalogs that had right. like the best descriptions you've ever read of. Really? Records. So that was and, and most, you know, 99% of the records you read about you'd never heard of before. So that was this, so so you go from and then you guys and you play guitar as well. Yeah, the thing was like we really loved hanging out with Paul because we go up to his magical apartment on the Upper West Side. Full and of just records. Sit there and he would just play the weirdest music you ever heard and like those were like, you know, that room he had was like kind of like a cathedral to us you know where was that in new york City? yeah in upper the west City? side near right by columbia university basically so so you were like one of those guys where guys who you let into the inner circle would come to your house and they'd be like oh this is paul's house this is where it all yeah happened. no but it felt like you were allowed into like a magical universe you know and it was an honor to be there you know you built a magical universe yeah, yeah. Just, right. but it was a very small one but it was like so special and we really loved those moments and the way the band started i guess we just try to get to hang out with Paul more and like get him out of the house because he was just sitting up there. All right, let's, record, a, let's move up to that. So from St. Louis, you're doing them, you're doing music there, and then uh, and then where do you go next? That was uh, <clears throat> see January 1977. Yeah, I remember we had the first St. Louis punk rock festival. I Who guess, was there? Who came? Uh, about three or four hundred people turned out, and it was local bands, the Moldy Dogs, a uh, fourteen year old girl group called the Welders, who were crazily into the Ramones as right. soon as the first album came out. And a group called the Cigarette Butts, yeah. I guess, that was uh, another punk group of, of St. Louis. So it's January 77, and a, uh, a blizzard hits right the night of the show, and everything's good. And then we said, well, we got to go to L.A. or New York. And while the blizzard was raging outside, it seemed like L.A. was the 
yeah. smart place, you know, beaches and getting warm. And it was a little before the punk scene had started happening in L.A., I guess. But at that very beginning, we spent half a year, I guess, basically here and then decided, oh, we, we should have went to New York. We went right. back to St. Louis. Wait, so you went to L.A.? Yeah, yeah. And uh, you just hit the wall quick or? No, we went around with our demo to record companies and stuff stuff like that who was, was in the like band with you extremely no uh no interest uh was it guy named wolf Roxon, yeah. just uh yeah two of us that came came out uh the other guys in the band stayed in st louis uh-huh. at the time when we just came out figuring oh we're gonna we'll come out and you know was it a play. short trip or you planned to move sort of yeah plan to move but after being here for a while yeah we decided we realized we should have went to new york you know? oh why because it and just so wasn't happening out here the the expanse yeah, of it it was before it was happening uh, yeah. the germs hadn't formed yet and so forth and okay. early bands and there were just a few shows like happening the weirdos and some some bands were playing in that but it was just like when the ball was getting rolling on the right right there wasn't here. a scene yet right and in new york there had been a scene for a while right and uh since what 73 so, yeah 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 I mean, and early on i guess extending you know, all the way back, you know, like it blew my mind. I saw uh, a poster for Suicide playing a show in 1971. So wow. it goes. Wait, so that was wait, the, which has the yeah. line "punk music" by Suicide on it. Is that where that came from? I don't know, but they were one of the very f- first bands to use it in that context. Because, like, I talked to Mike Watt. They all consider themselves punk rock, and it was just whatever didn't fit in. That was what right, that was. Right. You know, whatever you you were inventing in that moment. When did you go to New York? Did it find so that was uh, fall of '77. Okay, yes, we drove up. We had a house to use free in New Jersey for a little bit, so we went there. And uh, how's that work? Were you working? How were you making money at that point? Well, you know, one of the amazing things is when we were in L.A., yeah. we had an apartment. I mean, a dinky little apartment on Sunset and Vine, but it was 125 dollars a month split between two guys. So it's like we need 60 odd dollars a month. You can pull that. And New York, when I got there, uh, there was apartment near the corner of Bleecker and McDougal that was $198 a month. Get so, the fuck out of here! So we had to each come up with $99. I mean, New York, people saying, yeah, New York is going to eat you up. you got to struggle. I'm thinking, fuck, I don't really need a job. Right. Or whatever. <laughs> yeah, you know. So pretty bucks. soon on, uh, I guess it was mostly time to do the bands and you know, be a wild kid and all that stuff in the city. And uh, So you didn't have jobs? I did work in a Village Oldies legendary store in New York. Uh-huh. Uh, that was on the corner of Bleecker and Sullivan Street as a day sort of job thing for a couple of years, really. But it was more of a hangout place, and the I punk. I kind of remember that place. Yeah, it's it's it had started. Uh, I the, do remember that place because yeah. I used to go there. My grandmother lived in Jersey, and I'd go mm-hmm. visit her and go into the city and walk around. I remember Bleecker Bob's. Right. So was it before that a little? Actually, bit? Actually, it was the guy that ran Village Oldies was named Al Tromers, and originally him and Bleecker Bob were partners and had a shop further to the west on no further to the east on Bleecker street coming off the 60s and that and then they sort of fell out or whatever and each uh, had their own store in Bleecker right. bobs and broadway al then, then he decided since Bleecker bobs Bleecker bob i'm gonna be broadway al oh that was it <laughs> and yeah, uh, i remember Bleecker bob when i first went in there all the 45s on the wall were like like beetles and shit and then like i remember going back there years later it was all punk rock it just shifted focus completely and in the back they had all those great t-shirts and shit right Mm -hmm, and posters mm -hmm. and stuff am i remembering it properly yeah 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 and it it did happen when the the, those waves of punk started happening at the end of 76 and 77 then those shops grabbed onto those things all of a sudden the perubu singles were available and right all these kind of the beetles started to move a little off a little off yeah so when you were working at village oldies what was the scene who was coming in what was the deal it was kind of it was a crazy scene that store was uh 
half of it was a record store and half of it was a head shop store run by junkies. So it was really crazy. My first a lot of exposure to here. lots of junkie insanity going on and uh and that was still like that was still like big cbgb's time you know yeah I mean? yeah it was still yeah. all pretty vital right it was still vital happening there at, i guess mainly cbgb's and, uh, and max's right and uh, a few other places to play uh, uh, uh sort of between the two was one called great gildersleeves that was more like when tom petty was in town before he got famous he would play there it was like the old school rock and roll bar oh, so but some of the regular rock stuff started le leaking in there but yeah. uh at that point uh was really centered around those places they were still happening and i felt like oh i'm here a little late because uh a lot of the bands were off gone or that but the scene it did continue you felt like on. you were a little late yeah like uh, okay now the ramones and bands like that they're never playing there much anymore because they're out touring and stuff they yeah an, an, enough success but there was a second wave so i remember one of the first bills who played on at max's was with a band called red transistor which is a guy named von elmo who's an intensely crazy way out there person made, yeah. made one of the biggest walls of sound I ever heard and i remember walking in there and my band at the time uh my partner in the band was wanting to go power pop and i'm hearing all this incredible crazy noise that's flashing me back to those first fuzz guitars and right stuff. And, like i feel like a kid like i you know i got a bunch of records in there and i had no idea about anything like i was going down this list of like i just got turned on to that growers of mushrooms record mm -hmm. i didn't know nothing about them how the fuck but that that's probably mainstream to you right Sort of, yeah. Lee found. <laughs> Lee found, yeah. In a way, I guess it was. And uh, help yourself is another. It was one. actually on a real label. Some of those, some of those records. Uh, right. Are you anti-real like label? No, you know, I didn't make much of a distinction, and yeah. until I started getting some private pressings and, and started thinking, well, these are less filtered than even the crazier real ones. So when did when did that realization happen? When you were at Village Oldies? No, a little before. Actually, it was in New Jersey, I guess, when we were there, just before we came to the city. Yeah. We had a little recording studio on the basement of the house, yeah. and one day in the mail comes a package with three copies of a homemade record, Kenneth Higney, Attic Demonstration. How'd you get it? I mean, who... He, he saw a little ad we had for the studio in, in the basement of the house, and he said, well, Mom, here, I'm promoting myself. Here's three copies of my album. You know, I hope you can, you know... He wanted to record more, or... No, he just wanted us to help him... He was just firing them off to people to uh -huh. try to further his recording career. Uh -huh. And he was basically trying to make sort of demos for country artists or something, doing something kind of straight, but it came out completely, I don't want to say deranged, not condescending. It came right. out brilliantly wrong, right. like like a work of genius. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and you were able to identify that. And I, Yeah, and I did it, and I sort of linked it to some other things I had, and then I became more aware, oh, okay, yeah, people make their own records, and it's a good bet a lot of these people made their own records are going to come up with something that's like unlike anything you ever heard before. So it was right. it was like that leaking in a window of another dimension, getting right, right inside this person's head right. and their life, and uh, where some of the things that they think are are the things that went wrong are the things that make it brilliant because nobody edited all the all the right. good stuff out. No know-it-all or guy <laughs> with an angle. So that, that got me going on the private pressings. I really shifted gears from the punk and the psychedelic and a lot of things into checking out every homemade record. You and know. some of those can be almost loungy, not necessarily you know genre-based, mm -hmm. just there's an honesty to it. Yeah, there's an honesty. And there are lounge ones that 
they still satisfy like okay some broken down lounge act you right. know the whatever's live at the rooster tail lounge yeah. or something and, and something will happen on that record that is also like right like, got what? their own personality right. or something like, will go fuck? crazy they'll have an idea to do some song some weird way and it'll just be outrageous so where what what were some of the other uh names that you were picking up then so what's his name the guy's name Higney? kenneth higney did you go seek these guys out and develop relationships yeah a little with them? later i did uh when i got to new york and realized oh, okay i can wander from one record store buy some records take them over to another store and double the price and pay my rent kind of quick and, right. and spend all my time looking for records uh and what were you doing started, to know about how what these records are worth? It was just your sensibility? There was nothing there. Yeah, just my sensibility uh -huh. uh, or something hearing. These are special to me. Mm -hmm. And I was aware at that point, oh, there's a thing called record collecting besides the Beatles and Elvis or something. Right. So, and the whole other world out there. So, yeah. So I started running into and getting correspondence with people into the a similar thing in cities all around the world, I guess, after I started putting little ads in collector magazines. And, uh -huh. and, and what was the ad? Just sort of like... Uh... Just interesting records that I had found and gotten copies. Uh, and a little later, I started tracking the bands down to see if they had copies in the attic somewhere or something. So a little network developed around the world. It was very secretive and mysterious. This and... is before he started seeing the reviews though, right? Yeah, he... I didn't see them until maybe 1986 or seven or so. You've oh, been going several years. You developed this secret society. Sort of, yeah, yeah. Around the world, there were certain guys in different countries like South America. That's how I got turned on to all South American things and stuff that you wouldn't even hardly ever run across in US record stores and certainly not in the Midwest at the time. And sure. I would uh, be in touch with people and say, "What what do you want from the U.S.? You know, what kind of stuff you want? I'll send yeah. you a box." And and since I don't know anything about your music, you know what I'm into. Send me the stuff you think is the stuff. Yeah, you know, and, yeah, and yeah. I would get these boxes of records from around the world and this sort of you know network of people in every local location filtering their the like what like the netherlands records. south america yeah, netherlands, germany south america germany yeah and places like that and uh, i would be trading the u.s ones and and, and sending them uh were you like on fire with it like obsessed possessed? yeah yeah i was yeah <laughs> i was completely on fire with it i couldn't i i became a complete addict to the thrill of discovery it's sort of like Back in those days, since everything was so unknown, it was like every day or two, mm -hmm. some record would come my way that would just fry my brain. I think oh, you know, it seemed endless, you know. Where nowadays, I guess it's from that sort of vintage, especially nowadays, it's sort of like, oh, a couple records will come along in a year that deserve to be up with all, all those. And also at that time, though, in the 70s, and, and, and I imagine some of the stuff you were drawing from was probably a decade old as well. So you're drawing all the way back to the mid-60s probably with some of the stuff that was coming through, right? Yeah, yeah. So like that was the time where all everything was changing anyway. So there was, there was shit that never existed ever anywhere before. Mm -hmm. It's a little harder to find that now. Right. To find stuff that like this never existed before this thing, right? Right? Yeah. Like Nate, to name to name a band now that's doing something that seems unprecedented as a tall order. It yeah. is because like what the hell? It's all been tapped in mm -hmm. a way. So so like um, when you were getting South American records and that kind of stuff. I mean, what what was that stuff? It was pre pretty amazing. I mean, it, when the first box came, I remember it was about 40 or 50 albums, and it was a box uh, wrapped with cloth around it and a big green and inspected by U.S. Customs yeah. sticker on it, wondering right. what, what kind of stuff was in there. I right. pulled it out, and the album covers looked crazy. And it, w it was like a 
you know, it was hard rock and things uh-huh. like that, but it seemed to have a, a more, a little bit more of an unhinged, wild sort of. Yeah, know, yeah, and with a, maybe a little Latin texture to it, a little uh, beat or anything. Like, was it? What did it seem of its place? Yeah, it seemed of of its place. Uh-huh. Like you could see who these bands were turning into, uh, tuning into, right, like, right, Hendrix and so yeah, forth. Yeah. And they have, yeah, yeah, it had their their own local flavor. So when did you know that you had like you know you were dealing with a, like a living, like you were dealing with like you know like it, when did it sort of expand into where you probably had to buy a new apartment it or a storage bin? After, fairly soon after first couple of years in new york uh-huh uh i started realizing oh i should put all my time into into this and uh so that'd be like maybe 1981 or two and it was a like pretty that. easy process wasn't it it was kind of unfolded yeah. kind of organically right it, yeah mm-hmm. it sort of did yeah uh some <clears throat> i remember the very first time that got yeah. me going thinking oh this you know i should i should get out of this plate crazy store i'm in that was just village oldies. You yeah. never worked at Bleaker Bob's. No, no. Yeah. He tr- he tried to get me to work for him because I somehow people thought I was responsible back then or something. But but they probably like, also saw you had this weird talent for for picking records, right? Well, I don't think that had quite developed like where it translated into the store, right, or, or something like that. Right. It was more meeting the people and what sparked it. Two German guys came in yeah. to the store, and they were buying village some of the, oldies. Yeah, village oldies, and they were buying some of the like records, like uh, chocolate watch bands or yeah. whatever type, type records from the store. I got that. They're saying, can you tell they me where that, else? Right? Yeah, they just yeah. reissued it not long ago. Mm-hmm. Chocolate watch band. There's two records, right? Three. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, so these German guys, they came in, and th- then they were saying, can you tell us where else can we go? to get more records like this and i thought oh you know you should come over to my apartment you know <laughs> <laughs> so i did a deal you know yeah. they left a stack about that high record saying you know just send them to us when you get a chance you know yeah, total yeah. trust and the whole deal and they and they bought them off bought you? a b- bunch of them and then then i started going into it and realized no cash should advertise in the record collector magazines and oh right and but that and, and like, at that time were those magazines mostly geared towards like 78s and like really old shit or no, how they, there was yeah lo- lots of the 60s stuff was going going by then is and that it, how you yeah. determined what you would price shit at it would be sort of instinct yeah if, if something was around i, I get a, an idea of what's going for then or right however that but uh i guess a lot of the things it would just be how, how much it got me off you know affected it and oh right and, and is it you know or there are a zillion copies of this out there or am i going to be able to get this drug back <laughs> <laughs> always could back then was another good thing too it could be talked out of records that i only took me a long time to get it or something because back then before the internet and so forth with yeah. all the best records in the cheapest sections of the stores it seemed like unending supply you know i go back to kentucky once a year and hit all the hippie head shops and used stores and the records that i passed up the from a year before right because i ran out of money yeah would still be sitting in the stores a year later and i get no them one time. of them yeah <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh my god it's it's exciting i wish we lived in that yeah, world but, i wish i knew enough back then to do that now when you're at village oldies like were were there any of those sort of punk dudes around that were coming in sort of trying to use you as a resource to kind of you know break their brain open like who was around then did you like were were some of the junkie punks still around? Yeah, the, yeah, junkie punks were around. A lot of like British bands were Verlaine and Thunders and and yeah, Richard yeah. Hell were they there? Yeah, they, yeah, they were around. And uh, did you know? Yeah, those but guys? I didn't collect. 
I didn't connect with them through record connecting. It was yeah. more that I had a band called The Sorcerers, sort of a hard rock influenced by Hawkwind and Motorhead type. Hawkwind, band. are you responsible for me knowing about Hawkwind? No, no, no. Because <laughs> that's recent for me. Like, I just got turned on to the Groundhogs just like oh, within yeah. the last two years. How the fuck did I not know about that? This is great, though. Like, it's really good to have amazing stuff still ahead of you in life. There's you know so I mean? much, dude. Yeah, it's awesome. This, this is but beautiful. Were you always a record nerd? Kind of, but I mean, like, you know, I grew up later, you know, since I was born in the late 60s, but it was before the internet, so you just had to know older people that would turn you on to Need stuff. Need the older brother, you, the guide. Yeah, just like, I mean, all my friends were older because, like, they had some wisdom to give you, you know? Because yeah. before you could just type it into Google, you know? They're necessary. Like, you you were shocked to learn that Velvet Underground had more than two albums, you know? Right, right. Because you'd only ever seen two. You know? Right. It's like, oh, shit, there's a third one? Yeah. It's like, oh, my God. And yeah. even in the 70s, or, uh, I had I knew a guy who worked at a record store next door to where I work at a bagel place, and the record store was R&B driven, but this guy was like an art rock guy. He turned me on to the residents, to mm -hmm. Eno, yeah. to Fred Frith, to Robert Fripp, to all that shit. And I, I would have never known that if it wasn't that. And it blows your mind. Yeah, you know, I, I used to love Fred Frith and, and Residence, too. And I think from knowing that kind of stuff, that's how I got into other weird stuff, you know? And then there's one thing leads to another. And, like, finally, you end up with this magical catalog that Paul used to put out. But which what, is just, it was just such a mind blower to read because everything was mysterious and the descriptions were incredible. Like, what do you remember first seeing in that catalog? I just, I mean, this is bands you never heard of, but I mean, he would have like unforgettable lines like, this band has that going behind the bar and take a leak type vibe. <laughs> <laughs> and you knew you just had to hear it, you know. <laughs> so did the Sorcerers ever make a record? No, no, I just played some shows around uh, the city at the time and, it was a wild enough time or something. There was no organization to even right. get that far. And right. The only time somebody wanted to pump some money into the band, uh, we made the wrong idea of deciding, well, we'll put on a big show right. <laughs> instead of making a record, which would have been the smart thing. Were but, you on bills with like the Heartbreakers and those guys? Uh, not with uh, Heartbreakers, but some other ones of the time, like the Corpse Grinders, I uh -huh. remember being on a bill with, which had Arthur Kane. Uh, yeah. And then we used to rehearse at a place called Sunset, as I remember. Something that was a Heartbreakers sort of clubhouse oh, really? place. So, <laughs> so you see them around there, and a lot uh, of nodding off, a lot of sweating. Yeah, there guys. was a lot of nodding off. There <laughs> were some jams with Johnny and stuff. And I remember three times over a period of a couple weeks, bumping him. He said, "What's the, what's the name of your band again? What's the name of your band again?" Nice guy, right? And uh, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, I hear all kinds of stories or something, but the impression I got, I said, well, this guy doesn't seem like, you know, well, yeah. dangerous or something well, to well, me. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. You know, I, I think he was a hustler, but he was like, because I watched a doc about on him, and he seemed like a pretty sweet guy somewhere in there. But that sound, yeah, good fucking sound. Sweet. I, got, I figured well, I'm getting my punk rock credentials on now because I am sort of meeting some people like that. And then, yeah. Then one night, uh, he's like, hey, you know, you want to do something with me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, oh, I'm getting invited to, to know, shoot do, some dope. Shoot some <laughs> dope with Johnny Thunders. But but fortunately, yeah. I, I had a lifelong fear of needles. Oh, because you are when I was fortunate. three years old, I got bit by a dog that ran away. So I had to have these humongous rabies shots right. in my belly. So oh. there was like no, no, no needles going in, which is worked God. out good because when I went back to New York and those circles of friends from there dead. after about six or seven years most of them were dead yeah <laughs> no no you dodged a bullet buddy you know what that's a relationship you don't want to have to fucking start good for you god damn it man that, that drug wiped out all those fucking guys fucking insane yeah so alright so when did you left New York though that, that was later yeah yeah I left New York moved to New Hampshire where were you putting all these records dude 
They, they were all in the apartment, but did, when did or, you have to get another space to? They were in the apartment, but by the time I had left, you know, there was still plenty of room. But also, what's apartment. a great thing about but Paul is, yeah. he's, you know, he's a tastemaker and, you know, he's never really been a collector. It's more like, you know, every single record that you covet has been through his fingers. But it comes to him, then he sends it out again. Like, so. what's some records that changed your life that you wouldn't have known about except Well, for like Paul. that Morgan album, for example, which yeah. I heard, or, you know, it's a good one to mention because it, it, it came out on a major label, but it's still, you know, one of the best and unsung albums. You know? Right, right. And, and like... Uh, and it has an intriguing story, and Paul actually get, he tracked him down and interviewed him. And is he still around? Yeah, I don't know where. Like, it, this is going back some ways. Yeah, but, yeah. As far as I know. Yeah. And what about that one that's really rare that Dan was telling me about? Uh, the dark is it called the dark? The dark. Yeah. What's the, the story edges. on that thing, man? That was in the early, I guess, about eighty three, eighty four, eighty five. I would uh, spend a couple weeks or three weeks each uh, summer in England, and of course, I'd be looking around you know, for yeah. all the records. I, you know, see these interesting records. Like if I would have seen that Leaf Hound record, I'd say, oh, that's on a real label. You know, yeah, I'm going to yeah. buy this this one they made themselves. Right, right. First, unless yeah, I yeah. had enough money for both. So I walked into a collector shop. You know, with uh, all the stuff on the walls, it's like this is the Italy only version of uh, the cover picture of a Searchers album or whatever. Yeah, yeah, He's yeah. trying to you know hype me on this. Look, look at this stuff. Yeah, and yeah. I, I look through and I pull out a few private pressings, including The Dark, which was in the bin for 10 pounds. Nothing. I, I was looking at it thinking, uh, you know, this looks like one of those records. And, <laughs> and, and uh, I had been walking around, so I'd already spent, I only had 30 pounds left. Yeah. I found another album uh, that I knew I had to buy for 20 pounds because I knew it was worth a couple hundred bucks. Which and one was that? It was, uh, I think, a group called The Black Orchids. Nothing yeah, yeah. that significant. Right. But, but it was like, oh, okay, can't pass that up right. or something. And, I took a little stack of the private pressings and said, yeah, can you play these for me? And, uh, you know, put aside some of them and I'll come back and get them or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And he put the dark on and I'm going, oh no, he's going to do that thing. Like, whoops, that was a mistake. That right. did not belong in the bins or whatever. Right. But instead he says, you really like this shit? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going, yeah, well, okay, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Kind of, maybe, yeah. But, maybe I'll give it a try. Like, <laughs> played it cool? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I sort of played it cool and I was real excited, yeah. Uh, and did you know yeah. about that record? No, no, no. I was just looking at it. Isn't that worth it was like totally unknown thousands then. of dollars? Yeah, yeah, man. Yeah, they only made 99 copies, as it turns out. And they were a British band. And they were a British band, yeah. And uh, it was one of those you know, homemade private pressings. That and I got had. the reissue of that because of you. That someone you know realized it was yeah. worth something because you know you found that thing. So, what are some other like bands like that that you, you know you you sort of salvaged and and changed their lives? I mean, I imagine that because of of you know him uh, uh, re reading the the newsletter and other people reading the newsletter that these bands who some of them like weren't even bands anymore, almost like the old blues guys. They're they're working at a restaurant mm -hmm. and all of a sudden they get word that like their album's on fire again. Who were some of those bands? It would be bands like Fraction would be one. Yeah. Uh, band called The New Dawn. It's there's uh lots of Marcus from the House of Tracks. Uh a good number of them. Sometimes when I would find them, like yeah. after we got past the you're you're one of my friends playing a practical joke on me. You don't really want the record. Right, right, right. You know. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> I would uh yeah. After I got past that and the paranoia or, or the craziness of this guy raving back to Ohio Blues album, which is one of the craziest hard rock records ever, I remember calling him up and 
you know, uh, the phone goes and just goodbye, and it slams down. So I just kept calling back. He wouldn't even answer his phone. Finally, he got his girlfriend on the phone. So yeah, he's kind of out of it or whatever. He, oh yeah, you know, he thought you were a bill collector. Oh really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or, or this, but were these guys able to make money when they were reissued in that kind of uh, stuff? Sometimes, yeah, but for the most part, back back in that day, there, w- there would be bootleg reissues out of Europe or here or there, and there were some labels like Rockadelic and some other ones that started up that did track them down and you know try to work a deal well what do you think what what kind of person like you know when you deal with people like that and it sounds like a lot of the records were you know bordering on some of them were maybe not necessarily stable people but had enough belief in their art to to try to get a record made who are the people that make their own records generally i'd say uh they come from all yeah all stripes they definitely there's definitely the angle of the guy who's trying to really break into the mainstream music business right. and comes up with his totally bizarre tr- take on life <laughs> yeah. and that intrigued me the most but i'd say one of the best uh and most important discoveries in my life besides the kenneth higney album there's a guy named peter gridzian from new york who made an gridzian? album called gridzian yeah. yeah who made an album called the unicorn and he was a, a guy who had started in the late 50s yeah. trying to with a johnny cash type rock you know, yeah. rockabilly type trio. And he's right. trying to break into country music, right? And, and he was a, a Twilight Zone type figure. So when his record comes out, it's got early country on it and stuff, but it also has mixed in choral tapes and music concrete and and you know, cr- crazy, crazy words like fr- fr- from another another world. So it sounded like uh, like somebody had said when I turned him on to say, "This is the hillbilly from the Twilight Zone," yeah, or something. So he made this incredible record that's totally homemade pretty much plays everything in isolation he's making it and and it's it's not just a, a record we think oh wow that's cool or interesting it's a it's a deep work of art that right addresses life death sex everything like in his own sort of you know his own fragmented take on it but it's it's real and soulful and, well and is that record that. available did they re- yeah yeah there have been a number of uh reissues what's of his that. name david Gray- Peter. Uh, yeah and then uh, G R U yeah D Z yeah I E N oh yeah 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 that's a I so gotta get that one certainly it 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 it's it's you know it was a, you know a shattering one of those shattering experiences to me what you were talking about the with these people this is like by that time I was get through through the gates of coming out of like do I need to hear another version of uh, Gloria with a you know snarly garage vocal or do I want to do I want to enter this new uh, new uh, new world that which seemed like well you know I'm one of the first guys in the door here it's right. like, it's a candy store yeah but also you were you you got it it affected you emotionally and mentally it, you know it wasn't like a like a business necessarily you were craving the experience of having your mind blown by music and you had worn out you know this shit that everybody knows mm-hmm. and like i you know that's what i i learned from you when i first got hip to you and i started cuz i know like i get a lot of these records now dude a lot of people send me their records and and there's a couple of records that I've held on to because of that because like I don't know what it is one of it one of them was this I have to find it it was this woman who who just played guitar and and I think her boyfriend sent me this record that he produced and 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 the the cover picture she looks so sad and it looks so clearly looked like somebody said all right we're doing a record cover almost like she was being yelled at mm-hmm. and i listened to the record and it was just heartbreaking and it wasn't that complicated but you could feel it mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I gotta I, maybe i'll find it for you if i can figure out what it is so well there is hope for that like because i know you probably get asked that a lot like well th- can this still happen of course it still can happen because i think probably more than ever people are making their own records 
don't you think? Yeah, well, there, yeah, are more, yeah. there are more bands than ever. Right. There are more records being released right. than ever. And it's easier to, to yeah. do. Yeah, right. you know, back in the day, somebody had to be really driven to actually get a record out, right. made and recorded because it was still it was not in their hands unless they built their own little home studio right. or that in a lot of places. So yeah. I think the thing now is uh, there is so much of everything coming out and so many things, you know, zillions of things people will be posting on the internet and right it's like the needle in the haystack you know there are these things that are happening right now they're going to be really interesting but it might take 10 or 20 years before the right ears come across them and single them out because there's right. just so much there is so okay so now you guys so you're, you're you moved to new hampshire and what what goes on up there that's when I really got going with the catalogs. I was basically in isolation for the catalogs that he that, uh, yeah, that, yeah. that Jesper saw. So I would be basically, you know, doing all all that. For and how many records years. were you amassing up there? Like, did you have a, a at like, that point? I, I had a, a room full of them, and then an attic with like the stuff that wouldn't fit in the room. So uh -huh. not you know a humongous amount, but but, but a you, lot of obs obscure records, a, a, a good select. Uh, yeah. A large pile of select things. What was the most uh, expensive record you ever moved? That would be The Dark. It you know, would be. I some money. Yeah, I got like uh, 7500 for that, and that was a wow. long time ago. And Who bought it? A rare case. Uh, and, uh, a friend from New York who you know, uh, was a fanatic for British bands. You know, uh -huh. He'd heard it, so you know, finally he... You know, Are there still dudes that'll pay that for a record? Yeah, certain sure. ones. Certain ones, the... This band Stonewall, which is one of the best hard rock records ever, that was put out on a label, Tiger Lily, that uh -huh. was the label that was owned by Morris Levy of uh, uh, Genovese Family Connections. Oh, really? And so forth. Yeah. And he owned Roulette Records, the right. famous Roulette Records. And so, yeah, he was a legendary shady figure. And yeah. he had this label called Tiger Lily that was a tax loss label where he would put out demos people had sent to Roulette and put put out records without them knowing without it? yeah uh, sometimes without them knowing it uh -huh. and they never tried to sell them they would just manufacture so you don't even know them they out and dump them yeah where most of them went you don't know and this one stonewall which uh i had found like way back in in the 80s somebody had sent it to mm -hmm. me i thought it was inc incredible and i didn't know the story then you know that yeah, i think to this date you could still count on your hand how many copies that have turned up a copy of for stonewall that, yeah copy of that sold for over fourteen thousand dollars last year so there are certain records and this was on the obscure. east coast where they did where they all found regionally because if they weren't shipped no they, they were just scattered the one first one i had was found in los angeles and sent to me no shit the one that sold for fourteen thousand dollars maybe the fourth or fifth known copy in the world was found in new hampshire in a barn really <laughs> just so it's weird because some of those records could have just been crated up and dumped and then somebody's got find them yeah yeah there, there, were, there was a legend going around uh, that, that somewhere there's a warehouse on Long Island. They got a wall of Tiger Lily label albums, all the big ones of that. But, you know, that was somebody's imagination. Nobody, nobody ever, you know, walked into that, you know, holy grail scene. Re record collector <laughs> mythology. Yep. Yeah. So uh, did, what's your stock like now? Do you still have a lot of records? No, nah, I channel them, you know, through. So... Uh, the whole time so it's and once when the internet did get going and the whole thing the source thing dried up yeah even in all the other countries got hip to their own records right and, and then and basically the, you know the the demand exceeded the supply or something so now it's really hard to find one and, and with the internet you're not gonna 
if somebody know, has it, yeah, they even know if they're not into worth. it, they're, yeah. they're going to like see, oh, whoa, that, that's a $1,000 record, whether it really is or not. Right. They'll, they'll take that information there. So you don't walk into a record store and go to the cheapest section to find the best stuff anymore. Because everyone knows what they have. Right. All they got to do is go online and look on eBay to see what, or Discogs mm-hmm. and see what it's going for. Sad. Are you sad about that? Yeah, it's a double-edged sword. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm glad that... Uh, I, I got in when it when it was all wide open and free, yeah, <laughs> or something. A lot and, of and, fun. And now because of you, you know, thousands and thousands of people can experience and hear music they've never That's heard before. Yeah, I, you know, I like that. It seems like a, another alternate universe or something. Sure, with Morgan. Thinking right. now, you know, hundreds of thousands of people are really into Morgan. You know? Yeah, who, it's who great. Funk it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so now, notice when young kids and sometimes bands were playing with and other people and we start talking that kind yeah. of stuff. They have uh, when they're exposed to the good good shit. Yeah, they tend to have an innate ability to like detect it. Right. Know? Oh think, yeah. I think part right. of it, sort of being like uh, like the Stooges and Velvet Underground and Black sure. Sabbath and bands like that. Teens now are still into those bands, and they're not really listening to Genesis much anymore. Or, Thank God. Or Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, oh. or things like that. You know. I never listened to that. There were the, you just named two bands that I could never process. I, I just don't know why, but it's really like out of it's almost like mystical what you just did because I can't I just never could and I can get hold of most shit but I can't get hold of Genesis. They're incredible bands compared to Paul Simon's Graceland. <laughs> okay, well, yeah. yeah, yeah. You got to be positive about things. Yeah. <laughs> what what do you if we don't like Paul Simon's Graceland? I don't. Know, it's just it's just sinister, disturbing music. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so now we like you 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 get you you come back from New Hampshire to New York. Right, and you. Where do you live now? Where are you live uh, up near Columbia University? Still, yeah, yeah the yeah. same place same, that he went to place, as a youngster. Yeah. And so you yeah. you yeah. were corresponding with with Paul. Yeah, we have some mutual friends. Okay, we, we'll go there. We would go up to his apartment and hang out and be blown. And you just moved to New York, or you yeah, I moved. Yeah, early nineties. How old were you? I was like 23 or something like that. So this yeah. the, you this was like this mystical wizard in a way. Yeah, but it was like I was used to having older right people that were guiding through you this maze because there was like not even books on this stuff. You right. Know? You had right. to just people had to know, you know. And like the only way for me to find out is to like to have people teach you, you know. And but you were a collector when you met him. Well, a little bit. I mean, not extreme. I never had money or anything, but I mean, I you know, I was, the whole, the universe is so intriguing and Paul was the person that kind of unlocked the whole thing, you know. And so how did the music start? Well, we just kind of we realized we're all into the same stuff. Right. Then, Paul had this, he's kind of a recluse. He Uh just sits up there and drinks beer and listens to all these records. And we just wanted him to get out of the house and come hang out. Uh So we started this kind of ritual where like, let's get together every Tuesday at seven. We have a rehearsal space, drink some beer, and maybe we'll make some noise, you know? And had you been playing at the time much? Not, no, not much since uh, leaving New York and coming back. I I was still... heavy doing the record so like eight years doing, nine but years? i hadn't played uh, right you know i'd pick up the guitar once in a while but i hadn't played and never thought i'd be in a you know playing in a band again or something so, so. that so but that was the original dream for you to play yeah as band? a kid yeah it was as soon as that happened it was a real but this like, band that we started endless boogie was kind of was almost like a a joke or something it was not it was no, just no, for I us it. It was just, you just wanted to jam we sit in our garage and we would jam and we hang out whatever and we did that long and also you know there was no il- delusions or illusions of grandeur um, we never wanted to play any shows we just wanted to hang out and the music we played was just kind of like we, I loved like Krautrock but I also love Canned Heat yeah. so 
can we pretend that Canned Heat were a crowd rock band? You know, <laughs> that kind of vibe. You know, <laughs> that is sort of what it sounds like. <laughs> and like, you know, what you can't do with skill, you do with volume. You know, like you just. Kinda... But also, per, but also, commitment to a groove. I mean, that's yeah. you know, like that. That is like lately. That's one thing that I've been respecting more than anything else. Because yeah. even when I was listening to uh, uh, Full House Head. You know, when I when I was listening to Endless Boogie out of nowhere, it was it, it was exactly the experience that you were having with these other records because it came to me. I didn't know what it was. I had no context for it, and it was just. And I started listening to it, and I was I lock into the groove immediately because I do like Can Heat, I do like John Lee Hooker, I like Kraut Rock as well. But but that the thing was is that the groove held up. Like it's hard to do long ass songs, you know that that don't move around that much and have it be you know satisfying. And that was happening. And I guess it's kind of, in that regard, it's kind of an art rock project too, because where you kind of want that repetition and that becomes something else once we lock into that groove. You know, I mean, sometimes it takes us six minutes to get there, but once we do, we'll stay there. You know. Yeah. For a, how long? What it depends on. I mean, sometimes we <laughs> played shows that we just played one song. Oh, we really? Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. You know, if it's happening, we just keep going with it, and you can kind of feel if you're in it. Like there's, right. you know, like it clicks, you know, uh huh. And then you just get, why, why leave it? Right. It's yeah. awesome. Yeah. You want to be there. You know? <laughs> yeah. 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 You want to, yeah. yeah. You're yeah. there. And then all of a sudden you want to poke around and see where else you can go. You yeah. Know? Yeah. And, but not go crazy or get too ego about it. Yeah. 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 Just yeah. Try to keep it locked into that, into that place. And, but, uh, but it, it does honor a certain, like, you know, I know the name of the band is Endless Boogie and obviously Canned Heat were huge John Lee Hooker fans. Like that, uh, that Hooker and Heat record is one of the best yeah, records ever. It, it's yeah. one that, just when he says like I don't know how you're keeping up with me you know that moment with the harmonica players he must have listened to everything I ever made because I don't know how you're keeping up with me so like what was there uh, are you because it, it doesn't strike me as like it doesn't read as, as psych rock per se it's definitely no no, no. Uh, it's definitely a blues driven operation yeah but it was right? never really into I was never into stoner rock or whatever like where sometimes we'd get put in that pocket but I always hated metal guitar sound yeah yeah so. yeah even the metal band that I liked, I was like, I wish they had like more just normal guitar sound. Right. Like it's cool. Like, right, right. I mean, I love the Slayer. It's like to me a free jazz band, and they were incredible. I thought, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah, back in the late '80s or whatever. But I just wish they sounded a little different. Right, know? right. Like it seems to me that that what's most important is the groove, right? Yeah, for for sure. I mean, right. even you know. I think the most important thing is the thing that you do and not what you do it with. Agreed. There's a lot, lot of people who are like, oh, we're recorded in the same studio as Led Zeppelin, therefore we are as good or something. Or like, <laughs> Led Zeppelin is in our music. I don't know. It's like those when, people who go to Berlin to record in the Hero studio. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We did that U2 for Octoon Baby. <laughs> yeah, we just sucked up all that Bowie juice and we made this thing. Take it in. So, but lyrics and stuff, I mean, you sing mostly, right? Yeah, it's uh, a lot of it comes from stream of consciousness or uh -huh. something, and we're doing the jams, and something will sort of start, and we'll do it again, and, you know, don't sit down and, like, much and try to <laughs> you write the song make a statement it's just sort right. of like okay just i think yeah. sterling morrison once said if because they used to ask you know every time they would interview sterling morrison they would, yeah. they would ask about lyric louis reed's lyrics and he just got you know he didn't like that so much he's like if you want poetry read the fucking new york times right <laughs> <laughs> so what you know? what are the different uh configurations of the band how'd you find a bass player and a drummer who were those guys well, the band started, with, it was me and Paul and this guy, Johan Kugelberg, who uh, is actually right now putting together a book on Paul. 
okay. where most of these catalog descriptions will be in. And oh, really? A collection like a, of the catalog? It'll be like a mm-hmm. coffee table book on Paul Major and why he's important. And oh, it's why, great. And why we all need to listen to him. Yeah. You know, because he's, you know, he's a man with no ego, so we need to help him out. <laughs> you, you need to, you're the ego fortification yeah. unit. And, and me and Johan had this idea, we need to start jamming. And we kind of, we wanted like a kind of a crude rock and roll band. Yeah, yeah. We worked in the music business, which was full of indie rock, we thought was really annoying. You were in the music business? Yeah. Where, I, I worked what? for uh, Matador Records Oh, that time. was a big, big label yeah, for the indie rock thing. Yeah, so we were kind of not- Were you in, A&R guy? No, I did like production and- Oh, okay. Uh, international licensing and stuff like that who are the big matador bands i can't I'm like, well there's pavement oh there was a liz fair oh yeah you know those were like i've well, had malkmus in here yeah he's good he turns out to be a pretty good guy oh he's genius yeah. he's yeah. also um brilliant brilliant guitar player and you guys work with song. him yeah we, we know him well he's actually the reason why we ever played live because pavement had ended we were friends or whatever and he would like come hang out sometimes when we rehearsed and he was doing his first solo album. It was like 2001. Uh-huh. And he's playing his first New York show. And he's like, okay, I want you guys to open. Yeah. So we're like, no, but we don't really play live shows. So right. Like, well, no, but you're going to open. It's like, okay. <laughs> and that was the first time we ever played. And then we decided we'll play anytime someone asks us. That to was play. the deal? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And however stupid the situation would be we would say yes <laughs> <laughs> luckily these days we can actually say no to some things now but we still have the same idea we don't really plan many t- tourists or anything people contact us hey do you want to come to australia where we just were and uh, we're like, i hear yeah, you sure. got a big following in australia yeah we channel a lot of the uh, early 70s australian rock heroes like lobby lloyd and the colored balls uh-huh. oh the colored balls they yeah. reissued that dan turned me on to that yeah. that's a good record well, we've been fans of of his genius for many years and it's one of the reasons why the band started really how so because we're just obsessing over that those records and no one else had heard of them outside australia Uh it's true like no one and no one cared because they're a little too rock not psychedelic or whatever right but i kind of like the heavy rock angle yeah i got one record of theirs i think ball power yeah ball power yeah 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 Yeah, Yeah, we used to play that that's what mama said like in 1996 we try to figure it out but we couldn't we weren't Good enough. You are you not? You don't do any covers. Well, we do sometimes. What? Yeah. Which ones? Well, we do Mama, uh, Billy Thorpe. Oh and, yeah. Uh, the Aztecs is one. We do we do do some covers and we do Rolling and Tumbling. Rolling you and do? Tumbling. Yeah. yeah. So like when you play now, what what do you draw? Like what what do people know you now? Is it like like last but night? How'd it go? People, yeah, in Australia it was it was good. It's not like huge numbers of people we played. But you got a crowd. couple of festivals have a crowd and yeah, familiar faces turning up and uh, uh-huh. diehard uh, rock fans like that. Uh, we have a little bit of a vibe over there too because we've been championing Australian rock uh-huh. over here. And in fact, in and back in the old days of my catalogs, I had put a Color Balls Ball Power in there a couple times because I was in touch with guys swapping records here. And at two of our shows, uh, independent of each other, two guys came up and, and said to me, "Oh, thank you for turning me on to Color Balls." You yeah, know, it's like oh, they got turned on to Color Balls by me on halfway around the world. Yeah, or something. So we've been championing that. What's the new record gonna be called? I think it's going to be called Vibe Killer. Yeah. Because there might be. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> We're not, pl- yeah, it might be. It might be. We're not calculating. Working title is Vibe Killer. We'll right. see what happens. Uh-huh. You know? Right. We aren't trying to make it a Vibe Killer or not. Uh-huh. Whatever happens. But, you know, like, leave, you know, if, in case it is the one that brings everybody down and said, oh, fuck, you know, what, you know, did I really like these guys? Wait a minute. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
Well, I like you, man, and I was happy to talk to you, and I like the spirit of it all, and I hope I didn't seem like too much of an idiot. Jesper Eklo. That's me. Thank God. Well, thank you, I Mark wanted sure, I wanted to make sure I got it. I didn't mean to be insulting, yeah. and Paul Major is honored to meet you, and thanks for coming by. Likewise. There you go. Now, 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 set forth. Go forth and try to find freaky rare vinyl. It's time. It's time. Go to WTFPod.com for all your WTFPod needs. Check my tour dates. Do that shit. And, uh, oh, oh I'm gonna, I'll play guitar. I, I kind of like that thing I was doing the other day. Maybe I'll do more of that just for a second. Boomer lives. Hope Lafonda will too. <laughs>